Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. And then I detected a pistol in his pocket here, in his, in his holster. And I thought quite seriously to myself, should I shoot him? Today I'm chatting to Jon Snow, the legendary face of Channel 4 News. He's one of the most well-recognised broadcasters in the UK, who's covered some of the world's biggest stories, from the burning of Grenfell Tower to the Gaza conflict and Sri Lanka's bloody civil war. If anyone isn't familiar with John, let me reassure you now that he's kind of a big deal in the world of journalism. John, great to see you. Good to see you too, uh, Shauna. It's been a long time. It has been a very long time. But you haven't changed at all. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, This pandemic must be doing me very well indeed. The reason I have you here in the podcast with me is because I'm such a fan of your work at Channel 4. Could you tell us a bit about how you landed in journalism? What does your journey look like? My journey is spotty, uh, without any doubt. I mean, I did not grow up wanting to be a journalist. Well, I probably didn't know that I wanted to be a journalist. I was very inquisitive. I was good at essay writing. I was hopeless at Latin, very bad at maths. But none of that mattered um, when it came to journalism. But I didn't know that that was what I had to be. Uh, I um, I went to Liverpool University, um, read law, very boring subject. Um, so I spent my time revolting instead. Uh, and the revolt in the late 60s, was about inequality, about race. And in particular with the university, they had a chancellor who was a direct descendant of one of the great colonizers of Africa, uh, a man with no good stories to tell um, and not appropriate for a liberal, free-thinking university. Um, And we decided to get rid of him. And, And the funny thing is, actually, he was happy to be got rid of. I mean, when I went to see him, because he insisted on being seen, I said, uh, you know, um, Lord Salisbury, uh, I'm afraid we don't really need you any longer as Chancellor. And he said, well, I shall go. And go he did. But the university were terribly upset. They thought a titled gentleman and the rest of it with a fine colonial history it was just what that university needed. But we didn't. And we, um, we sat in the administrative block for about two or three weeks. There was about 2,000 of us. Um, and uh, But it came to grief because the summer holidays came and everybody went home and they picked off 11 of us and we were all found guilty. And I was rusticated, as they say, sent down for a year, but I never went back. Uh, and instead, I got a job in a day centre in London for homeless and vulnerable teenagers. Um, and actually the streets were littered with people sleeping rough and it was very, very tough. And um, it was a, an amazing place. Um, and, we, and we managed to do a lot with them. Um, and I stayed there for about three years. Uh, I escaped the day centre because they started commercial radio in Britain. And it wasn't that I wanted to do news or be a journalist or anything. But when they asked for somebody who could counsel people who were too bonkers to put on air, that in our parlance means a bit dotty or mad, um, you know, they'd need somebody who would counsel them and say, look, Maybe not tonight. You know, can I do something else for you? Can I get accommodation or 
whatever. So that was my job. But unfortunately, the only people who called up in the middle of the night were too bonkers to go on air. And so um, they had to go on air and I hadn't got any more work to do. And they said to me, you know, you've got a very plummy voice. Um, why don't you read the, vo the, the news? Would that be all right? And I said, yes, fine. And very quickly, in fact, from there, there was uh, the IRA became very ascendant. Uh, that's the Irish Republican Army. And they, um, they started bombing their way through London and through Great Britain generally. And every time there was a bomb, I would be sent, largely because I rode a bicycle. And a bicycle, the moment the traffic backed up and the rest of it, you could cycle down the pavement. The tapes would be going up to seal off the area where the bomb had gone off. You could dive beneath it, get to the seat of the bomb and start broadcasting on very, very primitive walkie-talkies. I mean, the, the quality was dreadful, but you could get your... You get the sense of what was going on. It was full of drama, amazing stuff. And really for about three years, I was, I was doing this. And was that for ITN? No, it was for LBC, which was the first commercial ra radio station in Britain. And um, I did it for about three years. And then the, the funny thing is that ITN, I didn't want to go to ITN, that's independent television news, because my cousin worked there and I thought it would look like nepotism, which it did, um, but it wasn't. And they, they said, well, you must. And I said, I can't, and I won't. And I carried on with LBC. And um, then the guy, the editor, sent me a letter saying, you only have to tick this box and the job is yours. And I thought, my God, they really do want me, don't they? What box was that? Well, it was a box literally saying, I wish to be a reporter at ITN, Independent Television News. Well, that's brilliant, John. I want to, I mean, I've... I've heard quite a moving and really unsettling story you told during your MacTaggart lecture about your time at the homeless shelter involving a young lady called Jan and her baby. Do you mind telling our audience about that moment? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem in the days when I was working in this day centre was that drugs were very prominent. And she was a drug addict. She was a heroin addict. She was 23 years of age. Jan um, became pregnant, had a, had a baby. Uh, and for a moment, I thought things were working out because she got accommodation, a flat in East London, and she seemed to be coping. She was well supported by the, the local community. Um, but one night she called me um, at the day center and said, I'm, I'm stoned. And my baby is is in the flat. I thought, my God. Uh, so I fortunately had transport. I had a little mini and I dashed over to the flat. Fortunately, she'd left the flat unlocked. And I got in and I picked the baby up. Uh, there was a bottle of milk. I didn't know how long it had been made, but it seemed to be the only thing which was available. And I fed it to her. Uh, and then I took her down and put her in my little car and drove her back to the hospital where she'd been born, which was University College Hospital London. And they stopped me at the door of the maternity clinic and said, I'm terribly sorry, but babies only come in here one way. You must ring the local authority. So I r rang the Camden Borough Council and eventually got to somebody and I said, look, I, I am a, a worker social worker, I've retrieved this baby. The mother has, uh, is stoned and has sort of deserted. 
and um, can you help me? And eventually, about four hours later, uh, they came around and collected the baby. Um, and I'm afraid to this day I don't know what happened to her because I went to Jan's funeral about four months later. The baby was not in evidence. And um, there it is. But uh, unfortunately, that sort of work was littered with these really tragic cases of social disintegration. I can, I can imagine. And it feels like, John, you know, as an outsider looking at your your career path, you know, what you, you clearly had a dissident voice in university being booted out <laughs> during a protest. And then you also have this deep sense of empathy and humanity. And, you know, you really, really do care about people. You know, at that point, did you not think, actually, yeah, journalism, that, that that's probably a career that could work for me? I didn't really, because... There were, there were so many of these youngsters, you know, they were, you know, 15 to 18 years old. And your hands were full with trying to deal with them. I mean, you, we were seeing 50 or 60 a day. Uh, and you didn't think, occasionally I thought about writing about it, but I didn't think about becoming a journalist. And um, it was only when I saw this advertisement for the first commercial station to open in Britain, amazing we got into the right into the 1960s uh, before we ever had a commercial radio station um now they're everywhere and um i applied for a job they wanted somebody who would you know counsel people and all that and um uh, that would be in the middle of the night when people called in on a sort of all night phone in and um i got the job and very quickly stopped counselling people and they sent me to read the news instead because I had a plummy voice. Brilliant. I mean, and John, you've covered everything from, you know, the release of Mandela, the earthquake in Haiti, Sri Lanka's killing fields. Is there a moment that you could pinpoint and say, that's the moment I'm most proud of in my career? Uh, it would be arrogant to say there was more than one. But, I mean, we often failed, too, uh, grotesquely. But I think one of the most remarkable things was after the American disaster in Iran, Desert One, when in the attempt to rescue 52 diplomatic hostages in the American embassy, they sent a fleet of helicopters off an aircraft carrier um, that landed in the middle of Iran, to refuel. Uh, and, of course, um, the whole thing was a failure, not because they were brought down by the Iranians, because they were brought down by themselves, as I was to, to discover by managing to get to, to the site. Um, and the amazing thing was, that one, of, one of the reasons why the attempt to rescue these uh, diplomatic hostages went wrong was because they had to refuel the helicopters once they'd got into Iran. And when they were just starting to deal with it after the initial crash, enough people were alive to try and help sort things out. A bus, a small bus, started running across the site where they were. And they had to arrest everybody on the bus and hold it hostage until they'd in some way managed to escape. So I thought, Two nights later, let's see if that bus is running. 
and we'll hide under and we'll get him to take us to the site. And that's exactly what we did. And we were the first people to get to the site, first media people to get to the site, and to work out exactly what had happened. I mean, it was gloriously incompetent and beautifully American. Not that I have anything against Americans, I love them. But on this occasion, the whole thing was, uh, had he been in part, sort of Trumpesque. It was a complete disaster. And what had happened was that the refueling aircraft, what had happened, they'd lined up all their helicopters, six of them that had come off the aircraft carrier, which was going to be enough to get the hostages out and back to the, to the aircraft carrier. They'd lined them up in a row, close together, so they could each get their refueling quickly. And, of course, what happened was that the refueling aircraft, which was a, what we call a Hercules, it was a C-130, it was a propeller job, very big propeller freighter carrying the fuel, coming in, created an enormous sandstorm with its reverse thrust of propellers to slow it down. And the entire area was engulfed in a sandstorm and it crashed into the end helicopter, which was so close to the next one, it caught that, and then the next one, and then the next one. And the last three managed to get off the ground and away to a distance. But it was a total cock-up, if one's allowed to say that in a podcast. It was so obvious what had gone wrong and so obvious that nobody had actually thought about what happens when you land a propeller plane on a dusty desert land. That's it. I never knew that story. That's insane. No, CBS caught us up, but otherwise we had it exclusively. The whole thing was clockwork. Our operation was as good as theirs was bad. That's unbelievable. I wonder in, in, in these days, would you be allowed to get away with that? No, I can't I imagine <laughs> you calling the Channel 4 lawyers or your commissioner and saying, this is the plan. Can you sign that off? Well, no, we would still not do it these days. You do it and then ask for permission. I mean, once you start asking a lawyer for permission to do anything, I mean, forget it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't leave the newsroom. I mean, I've definitely been in that position myself, I must admit. So, John, you really love Iran. You've been there on so many occasions reporting. Where does that love stem from? Well, initially, um, one of the things I did when I was at university in that brief sojourn was I went on a semi-organised university trip to India, in which we had to drive the buses in which everybody was driving. And I was one of the bus drivers. And of course, we passed through amazing countries on the way, Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, and then into India. And I sort of, I was captivated by Iran. I mean, the, the cities are so universally beautiful, spectacular, except for Tehran, which is uh, a bit of a blot on the landscape. But, but uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's an absolutely overwhelming country. And of course, you're never unaware when you're there that you're in a country with a six and a half thousand year civilization. They're very, very refined and amazing people. And therefore, the people who got hold of the country were not remotely sort of representative of the people that the Iranians are. Um, and that's often the case in many countries. There are many uh, Russians who are not representative of the Russians that run them. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, the people who run, people who run countries are not necessarily anything like the people who live in them. Yeah, I mean, I've been to Iran and actually it's probably my favourite country to have reported from as well. Um, I wonder, this is a very Irish story, but did you ever end up on the Bobby Sands Street? I did, I did, yeah. 
I mean, that's insane. I love their spelling, firstly, of Bobby Sands. I took a photo <laughs> of that. You'll never believe this, John. I took a photo of myself um, with my headscarf on the Bobby Sands Street, sent it to my husband, who's from Donegal, as you'll know, is in Ulster. And the following week, he happened to be in the pub. And who did he meet? Only Bobby Sands' brother, <laughs> Sean Sands, and showed him this photo. It was the yeah. most bonkers experience I've had. But it's so bizarre because actually the vast majority of people never knew who Bobby Sands was. He was only a figment of the authorities who thought, oh, here's a good, this, let's stick one in the eye by naming this one Bobby Sands. That'll hurt the people in Britain. You know, and, know, and, and quite a meaningless to the average people in Iran. They had no idea who he was. So, so my next question to you, John, I mean, you've several of these, but what is your most crazy experience working in this industry? I would say um, getting close to Idi Amin. Uh, now, Idi Amin was a tyrannical uh, figure who, who became the president of Uganda. But the interesting thing about him was that he, he before that, he'd been recruited by the British as a sergeant major uh, in the British Army. And, of course, he was extremely proud of that and strutted his military stuff at every possible moment. Somehow, I think because I had done voluntary service overseas in Uganda, I, I taught in a school for a year and absolutely adored it. I was on the banks of the Nile. You know, there were no other Mazungus. I was the only white man. Uh, it was bliss. It was absolutely and life-changing, absolutely life-changing. That's probably informed every day of my life ever since. But from it, I think because I was the only journalist probably trying to tackle Idi Amin who really knew Uganda, and he was pleased to know that. I mean, and it didn't leave me. I mean, I had to deal with him many times. And he always knew I was the man from Namasagali, which was the little school on the Nile about 60 miles from Lake Victoria and very, very remote. Anyway, I sort of gone along with him. At one stage, he said, um, I want to take you to my village, where I, my tribal village, which is way up in the uh, northwest of the country. And I thought, oh, gosh, I mean... This man's a killer. Uh, you never know what he's going to do next. Is he going to fly the thing himself? That, that, that was a threat. But anyway, we decided to risk it. Turned up, there, there was the plane, a little sort of executive jet, donated by the French, I might say. Must have been trying to win influence. Anyway, we got in, uh, and I sat in a seat next to Amin, and there was a Swiss pilot. There was a heavy set air hostess, who I think must have been the security detail. And there was my cameraman, Amin. And um, very soon after we took off, Amin fell asleep and his Stetson, which he was, he was dressed as a Texas Ranger, I might say. Every day you ever saw him, he was in a different rig. He, uh, the, his Stetson fell down over his eyes and I could, uh, you know, he was certainly asleep. And between us, there was a little armrest. And then I detected a pistol in his pocket here, in his, in his holster. And I thought quite seriously to myself, should I shoot him? I mean, what happens when you shoot a very fat man in a very compressionized aircraft cabin uh, that, that I wasn't sure I could resolve. Um, but also, I mean, I'd have to kill him uh, because otherwise he'd kill me. And it didn't seem to me in the end a very good idea. So in the end, I proved myself a coward. I could have gone like this and nearly got the gun and he might have said, ah, gotcha. You know, he might have been spoofing. He might have been pretending he was asleep. He was not beyond anything. Uh, anyway, we went to visit his, his place and, uh, you know, that was that. But uh, I maintained 
the minimum of friendliness, but the maximum of contact. I did that for a bit, reporting, I mean. That's, I always wondered if that story was true, actually. I think it's on your... Yeah, it's in my book. No, how I, ne- how I nearly shot Idi Amin and how my own courage failed me. Well, I think with the hindsight probably was, was a good decision, John. You might not have ended up... Um... On a podcast with you. Exactly. I mean, every every cloud. That's that's quite a story. One other moment um, in your career, which I know about, uh, which really stands out to me is when you spoke about Grenfell Tower mm. and kind of, I guess, the media's failure in not knowing about people like this in London and, you know, not reporting on the blog that had written about how unsafe these towers were. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I mean, this was a sort of standard tower block like any other people would see in their own countries. Um, but they had dressed it in a cladding that in some way would look a little bit better to the posh people who lived down the road um, without necessarily doing anything to comfort the people who lived within the, the cladding. And we knew nothing about this. We knew nothing about cladding. We knew nothing about... We never really had... I think we'd never concentrate on the grotesque inequality that exists in London in particular, but I mean all over the country. And Grenfell suddenly brought all of that together in one place. I mean, that could never have happened to a tower occupied by wealthy people. Not a chance. It was a cheap, jerry-built place. I mean, it was almost as if it was built by a council who really didn't want the people there at all, but thought they'd spend the minimum and uh, and dress it up as possible for as much as possible, so that it wasn't a blot on the richer people's landscapes. It was a disgrace, and it speaks probably for many other developments across the country. Even now, there are still hundreds of, if not thousands, of uh, blocks that have still got cladding and are still a, a real threat. And I think it was the beginning, it was the dawning of an understanding by a lot of people that. Um, in actual fact, the inequality in Britain, it's almost what we do best, inequality. We're very good at it. Very good. We've got very posh people. We've got people with very posh titles and people who have nothing at all. And we live cheek by jowl and we don't really do much about it. It's a problem. And I have a feeling that the coronavirus disaster may bring us to begin to tackle inequality and bring about a more even distribution of wealth across the country. Well, here's hoping. You did know quite a young girl in in the Towers, John, didn't you? I did because um, I'd been involved with Bill Gates, who had been running a literacy prize uh, in that sort of area. It was in that part of London, West London. And um, I was a judge in the brackets uh, eight to 12-year-olds. And uh, I had absolutely no doubt that this one particular 11-year-old had unquestionably won it without any, any dispute. Bill gave her the prize and the whole thing was very beautiful and, and, and lovely. And then 50 days later, I was down below the charred remains of the tower at Grenfell. The girl's name was Ferdous. Ferdous. 
and I was standing under the motorway which passes the block uh, and the walls of the stanchions that supported the motorway were festooned with the pictures of missing children and adults and the rest of it. And I suddenly saw Fedos. I saw her picture. And I knew she must be dead because it was now a week, 10 days after the event and nobody had unexpectedly surfaced that far into the tragedy. And that I found really devastating. And that really embittered me and and made me feel deeply unsympathetic to the authorities who brought this disaster about. I mean, you couldn't be blamed. And in some ways in journalism, I often find that it is hard to hold back your emotions. And, and, and in some ways, it's hard to remain objective. Like in a situation like that, when you do feel anger and you do realise you know, our society is so flawed, it's so unequal. It, it you know, th- that moment kind of reminds me of when you did a, a kind of a direct plea to the camera about Gaza during your time reporting in Gaza. And, and oh, you know, you could see the sadness in your eyes, John. You know, you were telling, telling us about the, the kids who'd been injured over there. Are you ever, you know, during your career, do you think it's, it's impossible to be objective in these situations? Well, I think you could be objective and you can be concerned. I mean, you know, uh, however objective you are, you can't turn a wrong into a right. And if it is deeply and and unquestionably wrong, um, I think you have a job to expose it. Um, I do believe in objectivity, but I don't believe objectivity sanitizes injustice uh, or sanitizes wrong. Um, and that when you do have proven evidence of wrong, you must go with it. That's your job. Just as you find proven evidence of right, you must praise it and work with it, absolutely. Now, I wouldn't even say I'm particularly politically motivated or anything like that. I just, once I have done enough research to establish what I think is the truth, you've got to travel with the truth. And the truth was this was an absolutely scurrilous and outrageous crime. And I hope the inquiry, which will take years, will nail the people who were responsible because what they did was criminal. John, thank you so much. Um, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. You know, we could probably spend many more hours going through your fantastic career, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, Shona, you're very, very generous to have allowed the risk of having me on your podcast at all. There are a lot of people who will now no longer follow you as a result of... <laughs> <laughs> having, to, having had to encounter me. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson.